0: This week's episode of The Road Taken with C.T. and Bayo is presented by State Farm.
1: State Farm agents know that in life, anything can happen. You might buy your dream car on impulse. Or come home to a broken-in apartment. Maybe say
0: yes to a proposal from your significant other and start a family.
1: Or find yourself in a fender bender when you least expect it.
0: Whatever happens, when it comes to home and auto insurance, State Farm agents are there to help.
1: And with over 19,000 agents in neighborhoods across the U.S., there could be one just around the corner. So contact an agent today. Because no matter what neighborhood you're from or whatever stage of life you're in,
0: check out statefarm.com today to find
1: an agent in your neighborhood. State Farm. Talk to an agent today. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode nine of The Road Taken with CT and Bayo, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Bayo. And I'm CT. And we are recording this on Tuesday, November 26th. The year is 2019. Right CT, at the buzzer. Right at the buzzer. That's true. This is coming out tomorrow. Where are we, CT? We are in uh, Lisbon, Portugal. And uh, how many shows do we have left on this tour?
0: Just the one. Today is the last day of our fall European tour, which has gone very well.
1: Yeah, I've been uh, doing some math and... Well, uh, you were a a math major. A minor. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. No, it's okay. Yeah, please, please. I was a math minor, but I've been doing some math. And uh, we've been in Europe for 20 days, and we've played... Or after tonight, rather, we'll have played 14 shows in nine different countries. That's enough to make any person tired. How are you feeling, CT? I mean, I'm a little, I'm a little bit kind of straggling over the finish line, but I think what
0: has really helped is the way the tour has been routed. As we're finishing up in Iberia, mm-hmm. and today in Lisbon happens to be a little overcast, so the sun's peeking out right now. But coming in from like the real fall, the real winter bite of Germany, of Switzerland, that the last couple of days we had that beautiful Iberian sunshine. Oh yeah. I think what also helped was we had some incredible crowds in Spain, particularly Barcelona. Oh yeah. Um, that was one of my favorite crowds of the year. I think. So yeah, you know, I think tired but also excited. As as we've, I think potentially over mentioned, Portuguese crowds are <laughs> are very strong rhythmically. Uh, and i was just looking. You know, the setlist isn't finalized, but I think yeah, there's yeah. definitely a few where like claps are, are generally a part of it. So there looking, will be claps. There will be claps. So I'm looking forward to some some really strong on the beat clapping tonight, which is really going to get me pumped.
1: I'm brought back to the last time we recorded, and if you're binging, you probably just heard this, you know, an hour and a half ago but we were in amsterdam and usually amsterdam is overcast and nasty in november but it was gorgeous now usually lisbon is sunny and beautiful but today it's overcast and i just feel like there's um there's a beautiful like karmic balance in our tour we're we're getting to experience the sunshine is a zero-sum game. You're saying? Exactly. We're experiencing beautiful weather where we least expected it and uh, clouds and rain where we least expected it. But it's okay. I went uh, I went for a little walk As to I. lunch. I got pretty soaked. But I've I've dried off now. What's your
0: vibe on umbrellas?
1: I'm not an umbrella guy. I wear a, a raincoat. I have a really lovely bright yellow raincoat that I bought in New York in September when we were there, when it was raining. I sort of actively hate umbrellas. Yeah, it's like, I have two hands i don't want to encumber one with an umbrella when i could just wear a a, like nice slicker or something like that for me
0: it's more of a spatial thing i I really feel like i'm gonna get like an eye poked out one of these days because where my head's at is where a lot of the pointy ends of a regardless very a very important caveat there but uh as we near the end of this tour Mm -hmm. we're also nearing the end of the first season of the road taken
1: it's true this is episode nine and uh i don't know it's I'll say up front, I guess, that we have already recorded the season finale of the first season of the shocking. Road it's Taken. A shocking season finale! It's a shocking season finale. We'll talk a little bit about that after the interview, but this is kind of the last time we're going to be sitting down, looking at each other eye to eye, talking about touring, talking about our time together. And uh, I don't know, what have been some sort of standout moments of the last, not let's not say the whole season, the whole tour that we've been doing, but really just the last three weeks, either podcast or unpodcast podcast related? What have been nice things for you? Well, I do think, and as you mentioned,
0: I'm not sure if I, if this comes up in, in episode 10, but I do think these little chats, which much like it's functioned with the guests and people that we have known previously, or mm-hmm. are like our guests say, someone that we are meeting for the first time, sort of the opportunity to talk a little bit more formally and with microphones and all all that. Uh, but I think it is nice to kind of check in and something that we haven't done in the past. I think we, no, we could be know on each other well enough. Right? We kind of know or sense how each other's feeling, but this is a little bit more explicit, which I have enjoyed.
1: Yeah, it can be a little bit unspoken. We've been doing this together for 11 years, but actually to sit down with two microphones, one laptop and one sound card and actually <laughs> talk through how we're feeling is pretty nice. Um. I will say I've been enjoying, uh, and, and we've talked about this a little bit on the pod, actually, uh, about how you have to listen to your body. And um, I felt after my time in London and Paris, I was party rocking a little bit too hard. So I decided to have what's I started calling Liver Appreciation Week. But then I misspoke and called it Liver Awareness Week. But I've been not drinking for the last eight days. And uh, I feel kind of refreshed, nice healthy, hydrated, and it kind of just goes to show, listen to your body. That's a a lesson, not just for a touring musician, but a life lesson. I've been really, uh, I don't know, I've been enjoying it. I just wanted to share that with you. I mean, I I don't know if I... Although you did have chocolate for breakfast today. That's true, Which is not, it's different than... It's a different drug, definitely, than alcohol, but that was more, I was kind of... For the moment. I went running before we played the last couple nights and then played the show... And I just was waking up kind of ravenously hungry. And there was something nice. I mean, we've been on the same bus for the last three weeks. And at the end of the tour, when you pull into the hotel, the stakes are kind of high in the sense that you've been living in this home for several weeks and you need to clear all of your stuff out, sometimes within one to two minutes. Particularly when you're parked on a skinny European road and people are beeping and you need to get out of the way. You've seen heat, right? Yeah, so or like Robert De Niro, his character has to be able to walk away from whatever life he's built in like, how many seconds does he say? In like 45 seconds, something like that. I can't remember, but it is a little bit like heat when you've been living in a tour bus for a couple weeks and you have to get off. So I don't know. Got up this morning, didn't have too much time to eat, but was ravenously hungry. Saw a nice candy bar. I'm not a big chocolate guy, but there was something about it. I had a couple bites. And then what was the first thing you said when I said this was good chocolate? Um, I don't remember. You said I could never have chocolate for breakfast. That's well, I will not, never okay. go that far. Oh, there's some lines You shamed that should, me a little yeah. bit. You shame me a little that should bit. Never be crossed. You shame me a little bit for my breakfast of chocolate. And that's
0: how much it meant to me, is that I don't
1: even remember saying <laughs> it. Five hours later or whatever. <laughs> Sorry. I know I shouldn't. This is our last time recording together. I shouldn't be using this podcast as an opportunity to settle scores, but um I just I couldn't help myself. But but yeah, it's been a fun tour. Um I don't know anything else you'd like to add about our time for Europe? Anything you want to, you're hoping to achieve with this show tonight?
0: Honestly, I mean, I'm, I'm excited to get to the conversation because I, I just re listened okay. to it. This is a very this special is, week for you. This me.
1: is CT week. Two weeks ago was Bayo week, but this week it's all about CT. So I would love to have you do the honors and introduce our guest. Who are we talking to this week?
0: We are talking to someone who I've looked up to for a long time, uh, has had a very long and illustrious and varied career. And uh, that man is Chris Hillman, whose name on its own, maybe you might not recognize, but he was uh, in The Birds from the start, B-Y-R-D-S, obviously. Mm -hmm. Uh, He, one of my favorite bands and albums of all time, the debut album, The Flying Burrito Brothers, which I was very excited to talk to him about. And then he went on to do a lot of things. He was part of Manassas with Stephen Stills, a number of various country rock, chains of last names sort of groups. Um, and then he had a lot of success on the country charts in the 80s with the Desert Rose Band. And yeah, he, he's he's someone who I've always, and maybe this is giving a little too much away about myself, but particularly in the Flying Burrito Brothers, he, I think, historically maybe has been overshadowed by Graham Parsons, who was kind of his his main partner and um, had a very, depending on your view, a very romantic rock and roll life and early death That has sort of like let his stature grown has has grown over the years, and even Graham who is dead, not Chris. Yes, yes, Um, that um, I don't know. Loving that album so much, I was always slightly annoyed that Graham seemed to get all the credit, and my guy Chris, who seemed very much, uh, very much of a creative equal with Graham in this in this project, because he didn't have these other trappings of of sexy rock and roll stuff wasn't given as much as much attention. And, and that's something that that always sort of was meaningful to me. And then the fact that he was parts part of these other really, really great things um, is always just someone I... And he always seemed like he kept his head down. And as we talk about, sometimes he knew it was time to move on from a project. And yeah. he did that in a way that was... That I think was very true to himself. I think very holistic in, in his approach. And when he felt done with something, he would move on. And even if it was still successful, even if he could still make money from it and things like that. So yeah, I mean, this was... When we talked to Malcolm Mooney a couple weeks ago, you were very excited, and I maybe had to do a little more research for that one. Mm-hmm. I did research for to talk to Helman, but I I sort of had this
1: you yeah, yeah. deeply you've ingrained been living for me. it. I, yeah, it was um, pretty interesting, kind of similar to Malcolm in that he might be a name you haven't heard of, but you've definitely felt his influence if you've listened to music. He's someone who had a hand in changing recorded music and and what it could be. Um, he's also someone who's toured through completely different eras. He toured actively in the 60s and he still tours actively and i I mean yeah a lot about that
0: that was i mean nuts like to talk about a dick clark tour in 65 with bo Diddley. yeah and then you know and this guy who experienced it and i was honestly blown away by his memories it was like absolutely it's kind of like you're gonna be in 30 years or something where he remember like the venue name the full bill yeah yeah Possibly even the the ticket count. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe the ticket count. How many tickets sold? How many heads were in the house? Um, <laughs> but no, yeah. His his so the his, not only the stories, but also just kind of the detail and the color and and the the true to life stuff that you know you get in books and you get in the second hand accounts. But was just for me was was breathtaking, if I may say.
1: Also, I'd like to add that his record, I'm fairly certain, was the last ever record produced by the great Tom Petty. We talk a bit about mm-hmm. that. Um, I don't know. It's an incredible conversation, as it always is, on the road taken. And I think one... Oh, yeah, we got to give a shout s- out. So when did when did we do this interview? We'd, that's that's important. We
0: talked to Chris. Uh, luckily, our schedules were able to
1: coincide on a beautiful day in late June. You know what? I'm going. Go, I'm going in California. I it was I in Ventura. I'm going in. Let me just see. It was. Wait, is it a hard tea or? Oh, I don't know. I'm. I don't know anything about my home of Los Angeles, California. We so we were in. We recorded this on June 25th, so we had just finished our first leg of the FOTB tour with a show at Firefly Festival, and we were home for three days before flying to the UK to play Glastonbury. So that's that's one thing. But where did we record this?
0: So we recorded this in unclear how to say it, Ventura, Ventura, California.
1: Also, uh, please send an email to uh, the road taken at for the official pronunciation of Ventura, Ventura. California. California. Um, at a
0: coffee shop who we've had a bit of a relationship with in Vampire Weekend called Beacon Coffee. So shout out to them. Thank you for hosting us. And actually it was a little stressful when we got there because there was a big like baby shower, baby birthday party thing going on that was very loud. And we had a bird flying breeder brother coming to meet us. So luckily that party
1: left right on time. So it, it was, was very we we did not ruin any baby no, 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 showers. No, no. And no baby showers ruined our podcast. Yeah. So it was a it worked out mutually well. beneficial situation.
0: And uh, just a little bit of scene setting is she's appealed to and and asked a question of a time or two, but she's not on, on mic. Uh, as Chris's wife and manager, Connie, was with us. Um, and so she was referred to a couple of times. I just
1: wanted that she's, she's there even if she's not um, taking part in the conversation. And she's a legendary manager in her own right, having managed artists such as the great Elton John. Absolutely. Um, so it was a pleasure to meet her, to talk to Chris. And uh, yeah,
0: I, I hope you you guys enjoy this as much as I did. Here's our conversation with the legendary Chris Hillman. Okay, well, this is very exciting for us. We are Chris Bayo, Hello. Chris Thompson and Chris Hillman. Hello? (laughs) Um, And we, I think the first thing we wanted to ask you, which is something that's been a big part of our career so far, and I think we share with you this, is with the Burrito Brothers. Mm -hmm. You started a band, you toured a lot. What was it like to be in a band with two Chrises?
2: Oh, that's funny. Well, Chris Etheridge was our bass player, and uh, he was a friend of Graham Parsons. Uh, Chris was from uh, Meridian, Mississippi, and if you recall, uh, that horrible thing that happened in the sixties when the, the civil rights workers were murdered and, and Chris knew the sheriff, Sheriff Rainey, that they got him, finally caught him and put him up on trial oh. but anyway so this is an interesting story, but so uh it was never a problem with two Chris's. chris etheridge was with us oh gosh maybe six eight months right. Maybe one tour he was really an r&b bass player he ended up playing with willie nelson for years he's a really good player and i gotta tell you um uh he was an incredible songwriter because he was instrumental no pun ladies and gentlemen but in putting together uh she, this song Graham Parsons wrote with Chris. And then we did these two songs, uh, Hot Burrito One and Two. And I think Elvis Costello changed the title to I'm your I'm your toy or something, which was good. But Chris was really a big part of those two songs. And you can tell because he has this R and B thing going. So mm-hmm. there you have it. A long answer to your question. <laughs> no,
1: I love that. But okay. did you do much touring while he was in the
2: lineup? Not a, lot. Not a lot. No, he we did one uh I think the first tour we went back east. And we played at uh, Steve Paul's The Scene. It was a club in Midtown. Uh, we did a week there. But th- in those days, you did a week or two weeks in clubs, you know. And, and I remember getting, having, in The Birds, I got a, a cabaret license that you had to get. And we worked the Village Gate. Was that like a union thing? Yeah, it was a thing where you get go down and you apply for a cabaret, cabaret license. I can't talk. And, um, and I guess it's because I wasn't a resident of New York City. Mm. Yeah, anyway.
1: Yeah, I guess the, the reason why we asked is it's been a very big feature of our professional lives where we are in a room and we introduce ourselves and everybody goes, oh, two Chris's. That's easy. And I guess yeah. we've been doing that now for uh, Over
0: a decade, decade 12
1: years. So I guess it's a bit different when you're with someone for six well, months. You yeah, don't have that same uh, kind of a relationship, I guess.
2: Uh, he was uh, in the group and did that one tour and mm-hmm. that was it. And then I think he, uh, I don't think his wife wanted to tour that much. So, you know, okay. I didn't cross paths with him until many years later. Yeah. You're the first
1: person we've talked to in this project who's kind of toured for as long as you have and seen the touring industry change dramatically. Like I, mm-hmm. I imagine it was nothing, mm-hmm. you know, from the mid-sixties to the late 70s. That's a profound time of change mm-hmm. in touring. I guess I want to start by asking you what your earliest memories of traveling for music are, what those early days were like.
2: Well, let's just go from The Birds, which would be uh, 1965, and the very first tour we did on the basis of the success of Mr. Tambourine Man, which was a, a number one hit all across the country. So we go on this tour of the Midwest in a bus, but not a bus that you would see now, not a, a wonderful tour bus it was like a bus, not a school bus, but a bus with some cots and some seats. It was it was pretty uh like a repurposed school bus almost? No, not that even. It was it was a yeah, it was like a a greyhound or something, but it wasn't a greyhound. But anyway, so my recollections, and this is interesting, we would pull into these towns. There were Holiday Inn had not gotten off the ground yet. I think they started in 67, 68 out of Memphis. So we would stay in these hotels in the middle of town. Very rarely would there be air conditioning, okay? And you'd have a big fan going maybe downstairs in the lobby, but it was like just a time warp. And I had never been in humidity. So I'd go to great lengths to get my hair straight as can be. (laughs) And then I'd get on stage, and then it would curl up. It was just so funny. And, but, uh, we'd stay in, in wonderful hotels now. I, I looked back I said, this is really interesting. We didn't know, know any better. Roger was the most seasoned. Roger McGuinn was the most seasoned guy. He had been, toured South America. He'd backed up Chad and Jer, uh, Chad Mitchell trio and, uh, the Limelighter, So he had done a lot of touring. Crosby had been back and forth to the coast. But for all of us to pull into a, someplace in Iowa, and stay in this uh, hotel downtown. It was the same thing. We Was just,
0: it just the band? Did you have any crew? We had
2: uh tour manager. Had, uh, the, our first roadie was Brian McLean, who became a member of Love. Oh. We, and he wrote a couple good songs. He was our roadie. He was just a 18 year old kid. Yeah. And we had a road manager. And it was it. We were trying, figuring it all out as we went along. Was that tour
0: more one-nighters or did you come into these towns and no, do like that a, was a week? One,
2: that was one-nighters yeah and we would actually we'd pull into these towns it was summertime and uh we'd do two or three shows that in, night in, in oh, one day yeah oh yeah in this you know uh, 45 on 10 off whatever 15 off and play a lot of fairs and stuff so it was interesting
0: would you play the same set three times or would you we'd vary
2: it, it between we'd mix it up i don't know if we had enough material um I think we did probably the same set as I look back now. Yeah. Didn't have a lot of material. Yeah. Cause
0: when, when reading about some of the like the early bird stuff in, in Los Angeles, even before you guys traveled at Zero's,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and like you're saying with the cabaret license, when you were playing three sets a night for two weeks straight, when you maybe had one album
2: or not, we hadn't even, when we right. started at Zero's, we hadn't even started doing the album. You but, just had the single. Yeah. We had, we were pulling stuff out of the bag to to do on stage. Yeah, how,
0: how did you come up with like we all did, that time? We to did
2: sell? Uh, money, best things in life are free. We did. Uh, I sang. I wasn't a singer yet, but I sang Maggie's Farm, Dylan's song. I remember that, and uh, it was just as catch as catch can. So uh, we really developed as a, a solid band playing seros, as the Beatles did in Hamburg, playing every night, three, four sets a night. Yeah. How was it
0: translating? What you did in the studio, and I know like that first single maybe had some studio musicians Yes, they did the wrecking yeah, yeah. crew you can tell. Et cetera.
2: It's, it's very smooth <laughs> <laughs> It's
0: uh, too smooth, but anyway, yeah the, um, was that hard to translate sort of this the studio stuff to that live setting or
2: No, I don't think so. Uh, we did have the, um, the wrecking crew. Uh, session players play on mr tambourine man and the flip side i knew i'd want you and understandably and i even understood it then at 19 that columbia records was hedging their bet they they wanted it this is our chance we had a singles deal okay Mm -hmm. we're going to do this single and if it works out and we have success then we'll talk about an album so i think with terry melcher our producer i think they were hedging the bet let's let's bring in these guys And, and 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 rightfully so but let me add this part. It was very good record. It's a little too slick for me. Even now I listen to Mr. Tambourine man. Yeah. It got us in the door and it really was a big hit in England and the States, but I don't know if we were ready to play it yet, but it was shortly thereafter. I've heard this so many times over the years. Well, the birds didn't play on their first album. Well, you can hear the birds playing on their first album because it's loose, but it's, it's got a sound to it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's got a sound. And so, uh, I I always curious, uh, would we have had the success if we'd cut that song ourselves? We don't know. It's just water downstream now. Hey, song me. I'm not sleepy, no I'm to.
0: One hey, thing that Chris and I have talked about Tampoline, Tampoline, in preparation for this is when we came up and touring became an option, you know, certainly lose money on the first few tours as everyone does uh, when when the audience isn't there necessarily. That's true. Um, But, you know, we came into an industry that's fully formed, that has bus companies, that has people for every role.
2: Everything, yeah.
0: When I was reading about the birds' early stuff, early tours, like a Dick Clark cavalcade of stars or whatever in an RV, it seems fascinating to me to have that experience of kind of figuring it out. And you guys were of that era. Before it became a big business. Well,
2: the Dick Clark that was a great tour, and I'll tell you why that was such a uh, so much fun. So here was Dick Clark. Um, what was the tour called? Dick Clark's uh, Galaxy of Stars oh, or something? Gal- okay, something so, like that. Uh, and here, Bo Diddley, um, you had the We Five and Paul Revere and the Raiders, and we had just uh, had success with Turn Turn Turn, so we were whining and we're not getting on that bus with everybody else, which also was not a. a Fancy tour bus. Everybody was on that other bus. So we moaned and groaned enough that we got an RV, a Clark Cortez motorhome. Okay, did we, the label pay for that, or you know, I think we paid eventually, as you guys know. You, <laughs> yeah, you, you may say, "Oh, they're yeah, yeah. paying for." It. No, you're they're not. You're yeah, paying yeah. for it in the, eventually. But uh but here's what was really fun about that tour. So we had one foot in that particular time, that era of the old rock tours right? And here we are playing high school auditoriums. It could have been the Buddy Holly era, 1958, 59, 60. But we had one foot in, once again, the Midwest. And you're playing these high school auditoriums and things. And it was so much fun. Did you ever see the movie that Tom Hanks did, uh, That Thing You Do? Oh, yeah. Of course. That was what the Dick Clark tour was like for us. Exactly like that. And uh, it was so, he was so spot on if, if Hanks did that movie. He was really spot on with that whole thing. Yeah. So yeah, it was early days and you're right. It was the, the touring industry developed, I think in the seventies and is right now is probably the only outlet for people. I mean, you obviously you're going to build that audience up first. We can talk about that later, but yeah.
0: How long were the sets on, on like that sort of. So on, many that, acts? on the
2: Dick Clark, I I don't think they were but 45 or 50 minutes because you had so many acts. You know, and Bo Diddley was fantastic. And Mike Clark, the drummer in The Birds. And Mike and I loved R and B and blues. We secretly wanted to be able to do that, but it wasn't going to happen with the birds. (laughs) Not going to ever happen. We were we we were way too white, white boys from LA. But Bo Diddley had such a cool band. His sister was up there, the Duchess, and they did all those old Bo Diddley songs, it was great. And we eventually moved got the tour went into New York City. Mm-hmm. And we're telling Bo one night, we wanted to go to the Apollo. He says, you're not going to the Apollo looking like that. And he says, I'll take you. And we never did that. We Mike and I went off and did something else. I mean, I wish we'd have gone to the Apollo Theater with Bo Diddley. That would have been fantastic. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> did you, did you at a certain point
0: on that tour, did you regret not being on the bus with with Bo and his band and, every, and everything? Or Not
2: really. I think we had, we were just going on we developed like 8 miles high when we were on that Clark Cortez the song 8 miles high in oh, in that and, motorhome uh, yeah yeah and we were listening to such odd things we were listening to Robbie Shankar John Coltrane a lot of uh, really uh, interesting jazz Eric Dolphy John Coltrane and uh, we had a, just a little rig set up you know Roger was such a gadget freak we had a little record player going and it was fun it was a lot of fun and we were in other kinds of mischief then than they were doing on that other bus so whatever
0: <laughs> um i think even thinking about these early tours in the us that's sort of let let alone the international touring as you as you mentioned you know the first couple of tunes were big hits in the uk and mm-hmm. and europe mm-hmm. what was it like being a 21 year old flying to the uk and did you tour deep in the UK or was it just yeah, kind of no, London? No, no, we
2: we uh, the first tour was just Eng- was England. It was just the UK. Uh, we were all uh, excited. We went, we got to go over there. I think uh, once again, in hindsight, we probably should have waited a little while longer. But we went on the strength of Mister Tambourine Man, and, and we go to England. And of course, uh, it's it's wonderful the way this story unfolds. Derek Taylor was our press agent, having been with the Beatles and and Brian Epstein's right hand man, and then left came to the states took on the beach boys and he took on us and you know and and a brand new band and we worked something out with him but he marched us back to london triumphantly you know and it was good it was it was we were tired but most all in all it worked out really well we we got to know the beatles they were very kind very wonderful guys and uh i remember being uh after a show one night because we worked constantly over there but after a show, we were all at someone's house, and it was Brian Jones and John Lennon, and and I was so shy. You guys probably saw old birdspeak. I'm in the back, you know. You are great on stage, Chris. You're, <laughs> been, you're moving. But when I was playing bass in the early days, I was in the back, you know. I I, yeah, I, I didn't yeah. sing yet, and I was just I was really shy because yeah, I, I was coming out of bluegrass. It was uh-huh. totally opposite. Where there's sort of no motion. No, no, you don't smile, and you you know you have too much to think about. But
1: <laughs> did you find playing bluegrass bass? fun cuz i i had i mean i took this is now 10 years ago i took some upright bass lessons for a song on our mm. second record that we would play live and my teacher was an uh, upright bass player, and his main source of income was doing bluegrass gigs. Mm-hmm. And he said that playing bass in bluegrass is the most boring it can, part it, I, I never did it. that. I oh, never, right. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were playing bass when you were in bluegrass, but... No, no, I was, I was playing, yeah, you're I was playing, playing yeah, yeah, banjo. Oh, yeah. mandolin. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Sorry. So I was a mandolin player, and uh, I got into the bass and the birds, but... Um, yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, what were we talking about? I was so shy. Shy, playing days. bass. Yeah. 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 So, so you are talking about the house party with John Lennon. Oh yeah. So uh, you didn't want to get in his vision. I mean, he'd get you. In his uh, I was, you know, in his eyesight. So he's, he just looks at me. And goes, does he talk? You know, and I'm just totally red faced, embarrassed. But they were really nice. And uh, Wait, that's John Lennon. She yeah. Said, John okay. Lennon. So and, uh, <laughs> I've heard of him. Yeah. yeah and. Uh, I remember uh, they came to watch us a couple times in different shows. And uh, Did
0: you get a sense of, friendly or not, but did you get a
2: sense of competition? Like were no, no, they sizing no, up more? No. it's more... We, they were so far ahead of us on all levels. <laughs> but they liked us, and they liked the band, and then they played us up in the press for a good six months to a year. We were their favorite band from the States. And like I say, they were very kind. We went to, uh, when they came over to uh, L.A., we saw them play at the Hollywood Bowl. We went to their house they were living in. And and once again, I, I tagline just was absorbing all this. And they came down to the one of the sessions we did, Columbia Records. So I George came and somebody else, but they were very, very nice, you know, and uh, that's the top of the game. I mean, they were just unable to do anything out on their own. I mean, it was just, you know, total madness.
0: I think we we talked a little bit about sort of this in passing, but I think this is another thing that you and Chris share is that previous to Vampire Weekend, Chris was not really a bassist. It's not something he studied or played in other bands previously. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How did? How, what was your experience like, not only coming into a new band, but coming into a new band that found success relatively soon after and playing I, an you instrument? You know the
2: story. I bluffed my way into that job because they said, I didn't know uh, Roger and Gene and David. I knew who they were because of Troubadour, Hoot Night, Hoot Nanny Night at the Troubadour. And... um I knew Jim Dixon, who was recording them and ended up being our manager. But uh, he called me because he said, David was going to be the bass player. Okay, And he, he wasn't comfortable. And he says, David can't handle this. He doesn't want to do this. Can you play the bass? I said, oh, yeah, sure. I knew there were, something good was going to happen with these guys because I heard them sing. I knew it. I could sense it. So I bluffed my way, and I didn't know how to play the bass. I never even owned one. I had a $50 red Japanese bass before they were even making decent instruments in japan or china i don't know where i got it i don't know how i got hold of that thing when i went down to world pacific studios the first rehearsal not knowing any of them i figured they all knew how to do this i think oh my god i'm praying going in get me through this there was one amplifier in that studio roger was going out of that amp and i went over and plugged into that amp and uh they didn't really know what they were doing. We all came out of folk music. Roger, like I say, was really the best musician out of the bunch, and uh, I would sort of work off of him the first month or two. And he had a great sense of time. And I do regret, Chris, that I didn't learn to play with my fingers, but it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, I went. It doesn't really matter because I was using Paul McCartney as my learning tool. And and who else played with a pig? Not Ant Whistle. He did. I loved Ant Whistle. John Entwistle, I love McCartney's bass playing. And um, his counter melodies, and and it's really amazing because what what it was, I think, David, it's very hard, as you know, to uh, at least to sing lead and play bass. Oh, my God. Conflicting phrasing. But um, I I learned, we all learned, and and we got, we turned into a really good band, you know. By the time we got to where we recorded Eight Miles High, we were a darn good band, you know, tight. In
0: an interview you gave, you said that there were, I believe you're talking about one of your L.A. residencies where you played with the Paul Butterfield Blues.
2: We did, uh, we played the trip. The trip was a club, which you might know or not know. The trip was a club that was down the Sunset's trip. And Butterfield was in there opening for us. So the birds and Paul Butterfield. And a lot of times we were lazy, but when Butterfield for a week we played, Butterfield Band was so good. I mean, they were just phenomenal that we played good. We weren't competing with them, but we got, we really got on our game and we played really good that whole week. We were really on top of it. And uh, all I can tell you is uh, to this day, Mike Bloomfield is one of the greatest guitarists ever that ever came along. He was so good. Uh, so that was that moment in time. You know? well, I think,
0: in, in the context of that, where you were saying that week in particular, you rose your game. Yeah. Because you were sort of inspired. and
2: Well, it was, you're going, oh my God, you know, right. you know, these guys are really good. They, they, they've been working so long. And,
0: yeah. But there were other times you said when sometimes early bird stuff was, this is your, your word. I wasn't there. Obviously. Oh. It was a disaster.
2: Yeah. It was loose and, and we weren't uh, on top of it. And, the, and later on when the Springfield, when we, we did a few shows with the Buffalo Springfield, we had to get on it. They were hungry. We'd already had our success. But that was then. It was a different time then. I think people take it all more seriously now. I hope so. <laughs> it's, it's, you mean in, in terms of rehearsing? I'm, yeah, and, I, and exactly. Yeah. I mean, I I can say that about the Flying Burrito Brothers. I came out of a band that had gone from doing Bob Dylan covers to doing Eight Miles High rock and roll star, those kind of songs, that we turned into a great band, like I said. Uh, I go from that into 1969, and I start with the Burritos with Parsons. And we were really lazy and sloppy <laughs> no we were not and it's it's too bad we had the songs we really had great material and um uh, initially we was a little sloppy and after graham and i parted company i kept the band together for another year and we turned that into a good band the burrito mm-hmm. brothers uh there's one album we did there's two we did one's called the flying burrito Brothers. the other one's called last of the red hot burritos which is a live album double album it's really good musically yeah i
0: think that's another thing we that i I wanted to specifically ask about is that transitional moment because a lot of the narratives that i've read of between sweetheart of the rodeo and Mm -hmm, the burritos mm -hmm. is sort of some of that comes up through touring where you were on the tour in the uk heading to south africa
2: oh that all yeah yeah, and I,
0: i just was was more sort of specifically what did graham do or not do to not go to
2: south africa (laughs) <laughs> was there like a, a
0: well principled he, stand? Was well, it? Well, he he
2: had become enamored with the stones, and that which uh, the ori- what happened was we had done a tour with Graham and my and uh, Kevin Kelly, my cousin on drums, and Doug Dillard came with us. I don't know why, but it was fun because he was fun. Played electric banjo. It was interesting playing electric banjo off was Rogers that before Dillard and Clark. Yeah, it was before Dillard and Clark. So while we were over there, uh, and we had we knew Roger and I knew Mick and Keith. We'd we'd open shows for the stones uh in the early days, and uh they came to see us and they invited us to go to Stonehenge, which you know, at that particular time. Let's go to Stonehenge and watch the sunrise mm-hmm. and uh, Sounds like a fun night. Yeah. So <laughs> they pick us up at one or two in the morning, and we go out in a couple of limousines and Mick and Marianne Faithful and Keith and maybe Anita Ballenberg. I'm not sure, but, and Roger and, uh, I and, and, Graham. I don't think the other guys went. But the minute we stopped and we were around Stonehenge and Graham was just running after these guys and Roger and I, <laughs> Roger looks at me and goes, uh oh. <laughs> yeah. But he, he just, uh, he was just, Taken by the whole thing with the Rolling Stones, so here we are. We come back over. We do a show in London. This is another tour. This is the tour that's leading up to South Africa. And Graham, uh, I think, I think the Stone, the guys, got into his head about South Africa, and they were right about it. We didn't know. We, we thought we were going into something. that wasn't going to be so disastrously, so bad. But problem was. The day we were going to leave, Graham says, I'm not going. I can't, and he gives this dramatic reading. I can't go because of where I grew up in the South and racism. I went, uh-huh, really? Uh-huh. And, 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 uh huh. And that was it. I should have uh, known better then because uh, I really did like Graham. There's a, he was a charming guy. We all loved Graham, but he pulled that number on us. You don't do that, okay? So McGuinn and I soldier on. We go down to South Africa. We play. It was a disaster, just terrible and uh, threatened down there, people, I mean, it was- it's Threatened whole, in what, in what a, Well, way? that particular time period was, what, 60, 68, 69. Uh, the Beatles were banned. Beatles records were not allowed to be sold or played. There was really no television per se, so the newspaper was the main media. So, of course, we do press, and then we're saying about, well, we don't like apartheid. We're kids. We don't know any better. And we got a lot of threats to the hotel where we were staying. People would find us. How dare you come to our country and tell us how to live and this and that. So, yeah, we got out of there. It was okay. But, uh, in hindsight, once again, I, I, uh, I forgave Graham, came back. And we were struggling to get the band going again. We had finished Sweetheart. I'm getting my time mixed up here, but I forgave Graham. I left the birds and we started the Flying Breeder Brothers. Was there, any particular meeting of the minds
0: or a conversation you had with Graham that well, either he, led you to patch up or, no, or to go that, forward. He
2: shared that love of country music. He really knew it, understood it as I did. So, uh, that worked in, in our favor. And, and we did start out with all good intentions. It was, we had a, a good idea and we had, I, I feel some of the best songs I've ever written with anybody was with Graham, those particular songs that particular time. Um, Lasted for about a year, year and a half. We did two albums, and then uh, he once again uh, falls into this trap and almost traded the career aspirations for hedonistic pursuits. That's the most diplomatic way I can put it. <laughs> sure. And it wasn't working out. I mean, it just and to where he would show up not able to play, and yeah, finally, I, yeah. I finally I said, "You're out." I, I fired him. If you can't fire me you wouldn't I said oh yes I can you're gone I wish you all the best it's over and I'm going okay now I'm nearly not a good singer yet bernie was with me bernie Ladin. and we had some gigs to do we went off and did them and and I remember bernie and I the first show we did was a was the end of the Tour across Canada, which oh, the had, Festival Express. Yeah, yeah. So we were on that, and Bernie and I were flipping a coin. He said, Well, you want to sing lead on, on this song? Or do you want to? Well, I'll, heads. And he got it. So he sings lead, I sing harmony. And it worked great. It was really tight. Wait,
0: so the coin flip was whoever won got to sing lead? Yeah. Or whoever yeah, lost no, had to we, sing no, lead? No,
2: no. Whoever won, you know, won, didn't really matter, but uh, we pulled it off, and um, Graham was a very charming, charismatic guy, but loose as a goose. He yeah. just wasn't no, he, always singing really well. And he, you know, it just uh, it wasn't there. there and was, he had, he, let me finish really quick. He had the potential. He had a lot of talent as a songwriter and could have been a great singer, but he was lazy. And, you know, and there's a lot, this whole lot of backstory to that is the way he grew up and mm-hmm. uh, that he had a trust fund. And uh, to quote my dear friend, Dwight Yoakum, who said to me one time about a year ago, he says, Well, he says, You can't really be a country singer with a trust fund. I said, Man, that's is <laughs> perfect. Mm-hmm. How true is that? Was think- the
0: was the sound of that first record in particular was that had you played those songs out before
2: recording them? We had them, played or? them out, but I don't know why we, we, uh, split. It's so funny to listen to those songs because, uh, Henry Louis was the engineer and he was a fantastic engineer, but he split our vocals on right and left. Pretty hard. Yeah. yeah hard so Amy Lou Harris learned Sin City listening to Graham's Harmony part. That's how she thought the song went. Instead of this old town's filled with sin, it'll swallow you in. She did it. This old town's filled with sin, it'll swallow you in. That's the harmony. Right. But she listened to the wrong side (laughs) of the stereo. (laughs) I had to teach her the song when we did it one time.
1: Curious, the kind of transition to playing live with the Flying Burrito Brothers when you left. What was a successful touring operation in The Birds? What were those early shows like? What was it like going out with a new
2: name? Stuff like that. The Burrito Brothers? Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know. I, uh, we, Of course, you're getting press and, and you're getting uh, promoted. And we would go out, we'd play smaller venues. And we did a tour with Three Dog Night, who were actually starting out themselves. So it was really catch-as-catch-can again. I'm using that phrase quite a bit, but yeah. You're out there building an audience up. It was so funny. The burritos, when they came out, when we came out, we couldn't get on country radio, and we couldn't get on rock radio. We were caught in in this abyss. There you go. Which so. was
0: somewhat similar to the Sweetheart exactly. campaign, how yeah, that yeah, went. Yeah, yeah,
2: Yeah. Much very similar.
0: Um, you mentioned it briefly, but i was just, again, more curious if there's any specifics of the act of firing Graham. Was was that, it was just... I'd
2: had enough. I'm being honest with you. I yeah. love the guy. I'm, I'm telling you right now. It wasn't, I wasn't competing with him. I love the guy. I really en- enjoyed working with him quite a bit and then it just got to where enough. You cannot, you guys are in in a band. You understand you cannot treat other people like that. You treat each other with respect and you give them space and it's not always a workable formula but that's where you you shoot for that. You have mm. to. I mean, I can only... the One of the best tours I ever was on was last fall with Marty Stewart and Roger McGuinn.
0: The oh, the 50th uh, anniversary. Yeah, I mean,
2: uh, talk about getting along and enjoying each other's company. We were out for quite a long time, and uh, that's the way it should be done. How many dates did you do about... Well, we're sporadically... What were we doing? 25? Yeah, it wasn't as much as you guys, but we it were all wonderful big venues and... We were working around Marty's schedule, and he had other shows booked, but it was so much fun, that tour. Was that your single best touring experience in your entire
1: life, would you say? It
2: was one of the best. I'll yeah, tell you. that's we amazing. Had good, we had some good ones in Manassas. We had great, great shows. Manassas was a great band. Okay. So once again, I come out of the Burrito Brothers, having rebuilt the band into a solid touring outfit. And at that point in time, when I ran into Steven, and he was talking about this, and I'd say, well, I've put enough time into the burritos. Um, and I, he said, what do you think about doing a band? And I said, well, what about Crosby, Stills, and Nash? He said, I'm taking some time off. I said, okay, well, bang. And it was ever so good. I mean, I it kept me on my toes and I played bass maybe three times on a couple of records in the studio with them and uh, otherwise rhythm guitar and, eh, you know, but it was a lot of fun.
0: Can I briefly go back because this, the documentary about Festival Express Mm -hmm. that came out Mm -hmm. when I was a junior in college. And I think we were about two years away from graduating and getting on tour ourselves, that watching that movie kind of informed in ways that were true and not true of what life on tour could be. Do you have any memory? Were you on the train or did you just sort of... We
2: were on the train for a few stops, but we weren't on the whole tour going east to west. They went east to west. Mm Mm-hmm. We were on it enough, or you, you could see enough.
0: Did you enjoy the train experience, or it's sort of?
2: I can't whatever? really remember. I remember. A days, I, I yeah. remember doing. Yeah, exactly. I remember doing one show, the one show where Bernie and I uh, flipped the coin to do Lazy Days. <laughs> so <laughs> that was Bernie and I and Mike Clark and Sneaky Pete. It's mm-hmm. a quartet, but it sounded good. So when they put the documentary out, I ran that by Bernie. I said, "Is are you okay with this? So if we let them do this song?" He says, "Yeah, because it sounded good. We were, we were happy with it."
0: Yeah, the, the the Lazy Days of right, the movie right, is, yeah. is great. And he must have won the coin toss, that. Huh? He must have won the coin he, toss, he that. Won, so. Yeah,
2: but it was fine. We were both struggling <laughs> with our vocals at that point, but yeah.
0: I also have, and this is sort of an inane question, but I, when I was I was listening to a more recent official live album that came out on Hippo Select from 1970, the, the film war, that one point when, before a song, you say that no one in the audience knows what a burrito is in New York. Did any... Maybe did, Bernie said. Did people know what a burrito was at that point? I mean, it's such a
2: cultural <laughs> not you know. really. No, it's now become a uh a, a main part of the of the uh, dialogue, but it, I don't think so then. I don't think they did know what that was. <laughs>
0: so, so maybe it's a more exotic uh <laughs> yeah. name back then or something. Oh yeah. Oh,
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> um for us looking back at your career, obviously from very much the outside, mm-hmm. there are a lot of choices you made to leave things to start things, to leave things to start things. And I was just wondering what was the sense or what was the feeling when you thought you know that your time in the burritos say had had
2: run its course or your time with I would stick it out as best I could. And I remember uh Roger worked for Bobby Darren. And uh Bobby Darren, besides his regular show, he had in the middle of the, of the, uh, of his act, he was a very savvy guy. He would do a sort of a folk set and Roger would come out and back him. But I remember Roger says, you know, Darren said to him, he says, McGuinn, don't ever jump off the train. Do you have one to get on? Right. So I didn't jump out of the burritos, but when I got an offer from Stills to go play with him, I went, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Cause I, Stephen, again, I'm using the same phrase. He was at the top of his game. Mm-hmm. Great singer, great songwriter, I learned so much guitar great guitarist, playing yeah. with him, uh mostly acoustic, what he did with the acoustic chart magical and we we wrote together it was just a joyful thing and it was a two year experience, and he got the call to go with uh back with c s n and then I all of a sudden get a call to go with uh j d Southern and Richie Furet. Mm-hmm. It all happened at once, so my point is that was I the luckiest guy in the world? Yeah, every time a door would open. A door would open because I always, I still thought, well, I'll go back to school. And I was going to be a history major or an English lit major. I'll go register for the next semester. I always thought that till about. At I what age did you give up the
0: college? The collegiate, uh-huh. At what age did you give yeah. up the collegiate dream?
2: Oh, that dream, probably 72. <laughs> you know, and I went, that's not going to happen. Right. Do I regret it? No, not really. Things happen the way they should. I I I I don't look back in hindsight. I wish I'd had more confidence, but there's nothing I can do about that now because it took me a little while to have the confidence to sing and lead a band and do all that and it, I finally I learned how to do that and uh probably the best thing I do now is is sing over over my playing cuz as I've lost a lot of that ability because of my I've got an injury to my hand and we don't need to go into that, but that's, you know. So Yeah. yeah. So I'm
1: curious because we have addressed kind of what touring was like in the 60s and doing the mm. Dick Clark tour and stuff like that. But throughout the 70s, are there moments that you notice things are changing in the industry at large where things start to feel different but in any no, way? Personally,
2: I can't go out of the burritos where we're literally renting vans still and, going, and I go into Manassas where you have a private plane. Okay. Not yeah. Jet, this is prom, now. Okay. I'm going, okay. And I said, "This is nice." And and we but, had a big that's kind crew. of the biggest step
0: step you yeah, can a make. Big
2: crew taking care of you. So I'd walk out, and my my stuff would be waiting for me to on stage. And prior to that, I'd be tuning my own stuff backstage, which I would actually prefer doing to this day. But uh, prior to that, I we had a couple guys. They'd set the stage up. The burritos would come out. We would play. You know, we'd mm. tune your stuff. out and come out. Yeah.
1: Would you find was there any angst to the playing life where you don't know what to do with yourself all day when you cuz you end up having a lot more dead time I would we imagine traveling time, that yeah. way Yeah
2: if we weren't traveling we had dead time and uh, not really I, there was some the guys in the band were great and we'd hang out and we'd have a good time you know and it was a joy I mean most of them are gone now it's sad yeah. I mean uh Let's see, Stephen and I and Al Perkins are probably the only ones, and Fuzzy Samuel are the only ones left, you know, and the rest of them have passed on. Yeah. And I'm still in touch with Al, of course, a dear friend of mine, and Fuzzy's a very dear friend of mine. We talk all the time. So,
0: so I think through the 70s and then into the 80s, when the Desert Rose Band mm-hmm. performed very well and you toured very well with that, I did. That there was a quote, again, a, a similar thing where, a quote you said was at a certain point, you you said to the band, let's retire this thing gracefully. Oh, Desert Rose? Yeah.
2: Yeah, okay. What happened was, we had a good run. We, I was in that band for the longest I'd ever been in any band, I think it was seven or eight years. And around the uh, early 90s, Garth Brooks came along, and it sort of changed the landscape, And with all respect to him. The late 80s in, in country music was a lot of singer-songwriter. It was really interesting stuff. There were some great acts out there. And we caught it just at the right time. We would work. We would work shows with the Juds. We'd work shows with everybody. Reba McIntyre, Merle Haggard. It was fantastic. And uh, it got to a point where we weren't just automatically getting on the charts. So that's understandable. And all of a sudden, we were going from playing the main stage at these fairs. To the what I call the Budweiser stage, where you're doing two or three shows a day. And a lot of the fair buyers would look at the charts and they say, well, who's on the country charts? And you see, Desert Rose Band number one and number two. Okay, let's book them. We play the main stage. But I've always said, there was another thing I said for years, I said the, the Desert Rose Band was a highly evolved Flying Burrito brothers, right? Live performances, 90, 90th percentile. Great players, John Jorgensen, phenomenal player, JD Manus, the singing Herb Peterson, John and I. And everybody in that band pulled their weight. There was no baggage, literal or figurative. There's just, there was no baggage. Everybody enjoyed what they were doing and it was successful. It was very, very successful. And we had a lot of hit records. So that was like, I, I felt like I'd done my apprenticeship. Up until the Desert Rose Band, all of a sudden I went from being the first lieutenant to Stephen to the captain, mm-hmm. right? And and uh, it's interesting. I just looked at it like, okay, I was ready and I led the band, and, and I couldn't believe it when we had our first top ten single. I said this. I told Connie, my wife, I said this isn't supposed to happen to me. And I, I don't mean to blow my own horn. I don't like to do that, but I, I had a song that I'd written, co-written with Steve Hill, was number went to number three on the country charts in, in uh, BMI. In the trades and i said this is not supposed to happen i was used to being insane you know so all of a sudden it, it worked out great for a few years
0: so then i guess this continues some sort of internal feelings that you had of continuing with something or
2: not continuing with mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. what what led you to shut that down essentially into oh Well, most importantly, Chris, I was not home and my kids were little and I was missing my daughter's birthdays. We have a, I mean, I'm always reminded well, you weren't at that birthday. No, and that's true. And I I said, well, you know, I was missing the kids' birthdays and I was just getting burned out. We toured a lot. Country music, you're touring. You're not just touring. Well, we're going to tour every other year. No, you're out there. Uh, And I just said, and we're not getting the radio play we used to get. And the shows were okay, but I said, it's time for us to stop. And uh the only band, or one of the only bands uh where everybody parted as company, as friends. And we continued working together with each other in various entities. The Desert Rose Band did get back together and did a couple of shows over the years. The last one we did was in Norway at this festival. It was the original band. It was great. Played as good as we ever did. And that was back, what, five years ago, I think. And that's the end of the story. We're done with it, Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a great memory. We the downside of the Desert Rose Band is that we were on MCA Curb Records. Now you've heard this a million times about the record company, the record company. But we had hit records and we still had a problem with getting product in the stores. I'll never forget we're playing New York City and Herb Peterson and I walk over to Tower Records. We had a number two single in the country, and there was no albums in there. I couldn't believe that's something you always do when you don't have a hit single. I said, Well, there's no product, they're not doing anything. But we had the hit singles, so. But that was then, and doesn't really matter now right. at this point. Yeah. And how have you found,
0: like in particular, this the tour you're talking about, like the 50th anniversary of Sweetheart mm-hmm. and stuff? Mm-hmm. Can you connect your experience of touring in this this era to those early, you know, 60s and late 60s, early 70s? You know, when you cut your I teeth. I
2: sort of can, but uh, I I think. Um, this particular tour, uh, just their, the professionalism, it was—it was similar to the Desert Rose Band. Mm-hmm. It was so up there. I mean, it was like Marty uh, Stewart's band, the uh, fabulous Superlatives, is, is a fantastic quartet. I mean, they mm-hmm. just get it. They, any kind of music. We we went and saw them play on an off night when they were working with Chris uh, Stapleton, and I was just—I went, oh my gosh, they were yeah. so good. Yeah, but a joy to work with. Uh, the touring was different. Marty had a fancy bus. Roger and his wife had a van and we had a big Tahoe and we d- just drive through the shows. It was yeah. A lot of fun. <laughs> Connie was my driver. She was my road manager. <laughs> and it was so much fun because uh, here I am back on the road with Roger, who I hadn't really worked with since mm, late 70s. And always a dear friend, and we had such a good time. We'd end up, at, after the shows, reminiscing.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's
2: so much fun to remember things, and good, not not necessarily going to a negative. Yeah.
1: When you're playing a song that's been out for 50 years, are you taken back to either recording that song or earlier times when you played it? I know that sometimes when we're playing songs now, we've been doing this for 10 years from our first mm-hmm. record, I'll sort of think back to our first tours or making yeah, that first not record. Not at the do you, Not, the, not, not, not in, in the moment. Not within no. the moment. Yeah. But yeah,
2: you do start thinking about that. And we would add songs on that tour towards the end. We were doing Rock and Roll Star. And I would switch uh, with Chris Krugs who was the bass player, and I'd, I'd just swap the instruments. I'd play bass and he'd play my guitar. Yeah. Uh, he's a he's a wonderful player too. He plays up and and electric, and ended up because he had this uh, old jazz bass he brought out, and I just, God, I love this bass. I'd never had a jazz bass, and ended up giving it to me. This is so nice of my Chris. I'll never play the bass again. When am I going to play the bass? But I want you to have this. It was very very kind of him. Yeah, it's just a joy. Yeah.
0: This is sort of a a general question, but would be very interested if you have any shows that stand out as either particular favorites. And also the opposite of that. Any shows that you remember being like quite quite difficult, or or
2: I'll give you a good one because okay. I was talking to the other day. So when we were on A and M Records, the Flying Breeder Brothers, we had our nudie suits. And the A&M, do you still have the suit by the way? I was kind of curious about that. My nudie suit is in the Autry Museum. Oh, and usually really? it's displayed. Somebody just saw it down there, and I. Uh, but it's I was worried because I didn't think they ever put it on display, but they did. Anyway, so we do, A&M puts on a promotional thing for the Flying Breeder Brothers' first album, the Burrito Barn Dance, in the soundstage area of A&M Records on La Brea Avenue. We put the suits on, and once again, we were sloppy, and we weren't paying attention. So we do this show, and most of the A&R people that worked there were going, who are these, What is this, they're on our label, and they didn't know what the hell we were doing. But we weren't very good, and we sort of got off stage quickly but the suits were glowing with those rhinestones the lights hitting those rhinestones and they're like it's like an arrow going they're the ones that didn't play well look see them they're shining but it was so funny that was one of the worst shows we ever did our fault and it's nobody's fault but your own you can't say right. well that stupid sound man blah 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 i mean i've had some interesting shows but i learned not to blame others uh we did a show i, I did a show uh with Herb at the Malibu Performing Arts Center, not too long ago, it was five, four or five years ago. And, and we had a, a quartet, there's two other guys, bass and another guitar. And the sound started, it started feeding back after the first song. I mean, seriously damaging, seriously. And I, and everybody was packed in there. Patty came down and, and it was just, it was killing people. It was like almost their ears were bleeding. And I said, turn that off very calmly, turn it off. And I said, we all went to the end of the stage and sang cappella. And you could hear a pin drop. It was great. And then he finally, we took a break. They fixed the sound. But Tom comes back and says, "Man, you're my hero. I would have smacked that guy with my guitar." And I said, "Well, I used to do that, but I can't do those kind of things anymore. You get sued and you get arrested." So, but, uh,
0: do you but, you wouldn't get sued or arrested in the '70s if you?
2: I don't think as much now. You know, yeah. any excuse somebody will get you for assault and battery or right. whatever. You know, but uh, that was an interesting. But we. But point being is that rather than yell at somebody and make everybody in the audience who paid money uncomfortable you just calmly take it and keep the show going and fix it and it worked out fine uh we had great shows in every band i couldn't give you specifics but there were some moments in the birds that were really really good and the In all the bands. You know, there was just you know, you get that you you know what I mean. You Mm -hmm. guys know, you get that point where it's it when it becomes so easy and smooth, that's where you wanna get to that point. And it just flows. When it's so easy to play the bass, you're not fighting it, you know. I used to have to uh, uh, wrestle with Mike Clark. He'd beat me to the end of the song all the time. He's, he's
0: oh, in, a, in, a, in a tempo, <laughs> in a some, tempo in a, sense?
2: Yeah, but sometimes uh, Mike would, uh, on record, he, like, Eight Miles High and Bells of Rimini and something. He played great. He really mm-hmm. did. But, you know, he is, is, is what he was.
1: So, yeah, great. I'd also, just unrelated to touring, but uh, talk a little bit about how your last solo record was produced by Tom Petty and mm-hmm. what that experience was
2: like and how you knew him and all that sort of stuff. I knew him. I met him in the late seventies when the heartbreakers were starting to really make it. But I never knew Tom as well as Roger did. Roger mm-hmm. knew Tom really well. And this sort of fell in my lap. I had no intention of making another album. You probably heard this story, but uh, Herb had been doing background vocals for Tom, Herb Peterson on uh, Tom had gone out with mud crutch, his original band. And somehow it got, they were discussing it one night on the road and Tom was all up for it. And so when they got back, Herb says, you got to call Tom. I said, I eh, haven't talked to Tom in 30 years. And, and I said, called him up. And I said, Tom, you, do you want to do this? He said, do you want me to? And it was, this is so funny. I said, well, do you want to? He said, well, do you want me? Back and <laughs> forth. But I said, I'd love to work with you. And uh, he said, well, let's do it. I said, but you haven't heard any of these songs I have. I had some songs I'd written he said, well, I'm not worried. I said, well, I'm worried. I don't know if you'll like him. He said, well, I'll let you know. So he uh, immediately start, start, set the game off great because he he was a wonderful guy. I mean, he was honest. He loved music and a joy to work with, I would hope. I think he really liked the album. You know, yeah. I'm, and I say that in all honesty. I i always worried, well, I, mean, I guess he would have given me an excuse and gotten out of it, you mm. know, and said, my manager needs me to do something. Herb's going to finish the record. But no, he we stuck it out and uh, and it, it it went by so quickly. We had a great time. Yeah, how long did it take to make the record? Six with him? weeks. Okay, you know if at that sure as you both know, uh, you never come off of a record going, "Oh, that was the greatest thing in the world." There well, was a lot of things I would have done differently. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of things. I wish we could have got Roger into the studio, but he Roger did his part from Florida, so we sent the files down. But it was it was it came out great, and and I told Tom. I think the last conversation I said I can't tell you how much uh, I appreciate what you did. He said, "What do you mean?" I said, "Well, I mean, I, I said this is a, a, a great, a great last album for me." He said, "What are you talking about? I'm not done with you." <laughs> I said, well, "I got some ideas. We're going to do an electric rock album." I said, "Okay." Well, bless his heart, I, we never got to do that, you know. But I got to work with him. We became very close, and we talked. And we it was it was wonderful. He was a, he was a good guy, and I'll tell you. I've never met a more humble man occupying the position he did that was so, he was so into the music and everything. It wasn't about being a rock star. I just never looked at him like that. You know, he was just Tom Petty, just a guy. And that's why I think when he passed on that people mourned him heavily all over the world, he was accessible. Mm -hmm. You know, he wasn't a rock star in that sense.
1: And how was playing shows with that project? Was had Tom passed when you went out? Yeah, to tour? he was going to uh,
2: sit in with us when we did the troubadour, but that had happened a week before. He, oh,
1: wow. Oh. He died.
2: Yeah. And the, I mean, the heartbreakers didn't come down and anything. So it was really horrible. And at one point, when I heard he had passed away and we were in Nashville, I was going to cancel the next four shows. And uh, and McGuinn called me. Out of the blue, and, and we're talking. He said, don't cancel those shows. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, Tom would never would not like it if you canceled those shows. I said, what? He said, go out and celebrate him and celebrate his life and, and the shows. Yeah. Great, great advice. We continued on with the shows. So that's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when at the on the shows at Sweetheart tour, we would do a, a tribute to Tom every night. Mm-hmm. You know, Marty did a killer acoustic version of, um, Dun, 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 dun. What's that song? Running down. Running. Jane. Oh man, <laughs> Marty Cooks on that song, uh, yeah, and it's acoustic. Yeah. Wow. Oh uh, yeah, acoustic. The four of them, and uh, I would do one. Roger would do one. Yeah. So, <laughs> look, looking forward, do you have any shows coming up or tours you want to do? Anything? I've got some shows in the fall. And I purposely took this summer off. We're still getting back to our life with our house and after the fire we were involved in. Uh, but all is well. And and I have some shows in September and October and November. I know uh, we'll see what happens. I I don't know. I really don't. Oh, and a book oh, I, is oh, coming. I, I, all right. Yeah, anything you'd
0: like to promote that's coming <laughs> up on the horizon?
2: <laughs> Aging rock star autobiography. I did write this a few years ago, a memoir. And, uh, it's going to be on BMG, BMG, uh, uh, signed me. So I'll turn that in, in the, in December. It's done for all intents and purposes. And it's just about my musical, uh, journey. It's from the time I was playing in Hillbilly Bars with a fake ID in 1963. The Golden State Boys. Yeah. And up, up to, uh, Petty. I didn't. Go into, uh, denigrating or putting down anybody I worked with. And then so Graham was a bum. He was a drug addict. I didn't need to do that. I rather talked about how good Graham was and that, uh, he just lost his way. And that's as best I could do it. And I, I must hand it. I, li- I don't read those books, but I, I read Ronstadt's book and Linda did that. She wrote about the music mm-hmm. and didn't go into saying, well, this guy is, it's, it's, uh, irrelevant. It's irrelevant to, to uh, Condemn or attack people you've worked with or whatever. What's the point?
0: I'm curious actually because as a consumer, I like those books. Either yeah. either with <laughs> either I, approach, I liked
2: Keith Richards' book, and yeah. and uh, but I, I haven't really read any other ones. And I thought Keith had written it, but he didn't. He had a ghostwriter. <laughs> you know, but I was well, I was curious.
0: Is what what did you use to? Did you listen to the music? Did you look back at things you'd kept?
2: I remembered le- things, Chris. I remembered things. Uh, I had a, a pretty good memory and I remembered situations up. I mean, every little nuance like the, the school custodian, Bill Smith. Okay. Uh, Who's someone
0: who we talked about before right. we got on. Bill Smith, before, before we
2: quickly, Bill Smith was at my high school when I was learning the guitar and, and trying to learn how to play bluegrass. And he was a, uh, the head custodian and he played in a country band on the weekends. And I went up to him and I introduced myself. And he was the nicest guy. He said, come on over, let's talk. And I went to his house on many Saturdays after that. And he taught me about the music. He taught me about country music. Excuse me, and bluegrass and that. And followed my career up until he passed away. Sweet guy. Yeah. So, But those kind of stories where it's almost like the subtext is, mentors I would run across these people that would say maybe you ought to try and you know and, and give you some advice whether you took it or not but yeah that's a lot of those
1: um are you home or away in early October
2: I asked my manager home Oh. she say home
1: well, we'd love it if you came. We're playing Hollywood Bowl. Oh, we'd I'd love, love it, it if you guys still would still be our guests. Out. Love to come down. Yeah, yeah. I'd
2: love to see you guys play. Yeah. I like you. I've all I've seen you on is YouTube. Okay, you're a your good band. <laughs> Thank you. And I, uh, I wouldn't tell you that if I didn't like it. But it is. It's, it's a darn good band. And my kid, my son is 30 years old, and he said, Dad, and my daughter's 35. And they said, You're talking the guys from Vampire. I said, Yeah. <laughs> and then, oh, and the other time they, they, I was a hero was when, uh, what was that group that came to see me at the, huh? A Coldplay Coldplay? Came. Oh, nice. Yes. Oh, tell us, tell us about at, what happens when Coldplay at, comes to your show. I was Kings, and it was like
1: maybe Ta- In Times Square the, three in New York?
2: Four, yeah, maybe three or four years ago, maybe. I can't remember my time. But they came backstage, a couple of the guys from Coldplay. I didn't know who they were. I <laughs> was so out of the loop, and and they were really nice guys. Came back, we talked, da, 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 da. and I go home and I say, Yeah, this, do you guys know who the Cole played? Dad. I said, Well, they came back, they they came back and talked to me at the show I did at BB King's. Dad, do you know who they are? I do you
0: like them as a band?
2: Yeah, I'm not as familiar. I'm probably more familiar with you guys lately because I don't, I, I haven't heard them or seen them. They're still together, right? I hate Yeah, yeah. Are, yeah, biggest, it's a terrible, biggest band in the world. They're one of the, <laughs> <Yeah>. re- <laughs> the remain one of the world. biggest bands yeah, in the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. They're English. Correct. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're good. Yeah. I like anybody that's melodic and has a sense of depth to the, the lyric. And I'm not, who am I to point my finger and tell anybody what to do? But I, yeah. I, and the greatest advice, you've probably read it that our manager said, Jim Dixon, who said to us in the early, early, early days of the birds, he said, you guys, when he brought tambourine man into us and we were going, we don't like it. He says, you guys need to, <laughs> nice. to uh, go for substance and depth in your songs. You want to make records you're proud of in 40 or 50 years. What great advice.
0: Has that, and that's proven to be true.
2: It's proven to be true. For we the did, most part. We didn't ha- hit everything out of the park. Yeah. We made some stupid records that you think <laughs> the worst mistake is when you think something is so cool and hip at the time. This is great. The, and it'll get you later. It'll haunt mm-hmm. you later. I did it in the breed did every band, but, but uh, all in all, uh, we followed that advice. Yeah.
0: Well, I think speaking for both of us and particularly myself, you've always been a hero of mine. This has Thank been you. such an honor to, to meet you and get to talk to you and hear some of I these always stories. I feel like
2: I'm a footnote in the book. <laughs> no, I, you no. Know, I, let me tell you something. I'm, I'm honest. With you. I, I never sought to be uh, Bruce Springsteen. I don't think I had the goods at the time to do that. But I always enjoyed playing and being a musician in a band with other people. And um, I had a great career. I really did. I was very, very... Lucky, I was very blessed to be able to do something that I loved. I never thought I'd make a dollar. I mean, the first time I got paid, and that's why I say 1963 is when I started. I got ten dollars. I said, "Wow, this is this is extra icing on the cake." You know, you just wanted to play. You know, you guys started. You you just want to play wherever you can, when right. you can, wherever you can. So it it uh, was worked. there ever a time when
0: that was hard to keep track of that motivation?
2: It, oh yeah. Oh yeah. A lot of times. And then you, i am going. okay, well, it's been about 56 years and yeah, I still need to be motivated. And I, I do, I need somebody to kick me in the rear end sometimes and get me going. But I think I was talking to Herb. Herb's great. I've known Herb since for 56 years. And, uh, I said, Herb, I, I, I'm so out of the loop right now, but I said, once we do our first show, it'll be great. Once we go out and play that first show in September, after taking a six-month hiatus, it'll be great. Come back.
0: Well, I think we look forward to hopefully seeing those shows, reading that book. Thank Thank you you so much. Thanks for
2: having me. I I appreciate this very much.
1: That was our conversation with Chris Holman. CT, I got to ask, how was it to meet one of your legends, one of your heroes? Uh, I mean, it was absolutely
0: incredible. I think, you know, I think there's definitely a possibility when something like that happens that even if the history and your relationship with their art is very meaningful, the conversation could be underwhelming or, or the, you know, for whatever set of reasons. But uh, talking to Chris was truly a pleasure and all of these musical things... That I have thought of and really like lived deeply in, that he could just sort of recount as part of a long career was was very special to me. And it was also funny, even like how much that first Flying Burrito Brothers album means to me. Mm-hmm. And not that he doesn't care about it, but it's obviously just one part in a very long, decades long career. Yeah, <laughs> so when definitely. I was like, I was ready to ask oh, all these questions about it. You know, he, he there was more going on, which as as rightfully so, you know, we moved on. But yeah, I mean, it was absolutely incredible.
1: I got a question for you. If you were to recommend a single song that Chris Hillman appeared on, just in case, you know, our listeners aren't super familiar with his music, one song that you feel like would be the one as an entry point into uh, decades-long discography, what song would you pick? I think it's one he mentioned in our
0: podcast. I mean, there's many. and well, like, Of course. If you ask me tomorrow, I might choose a different one. But I think the one, particularly because he talked about it and talked about how um, Lou Harris learned to sing The harmony as the melody um, is the song Sin City, which is track two on the Flying Brito Brothers debut album called The Gilded Palace of Sin. You can stream it, scoop it up somewhere. I mean, that whole album is incredible to me, as I'm I'm mentioning. And also, I want to just follow up on a couple of things that happened at the end of that podcast. Oh, yeah. Okay. One is we did end up reaching out. Unfortunately, Chris and Connie were busy and could not make it to the Hollywood Bowl. Oh, right. Yeah. But yeah. we, we would have loved to have them. happen. Yeah, yeah. And um, also, this is sort of a bridge to maybe the more general stuff, but I don't know if you remember, but he mentioned his kids being impressed that he was talking to members of Empire Weekend. Oh, yeah. And he said the only other time that it's happened is when the lads from Coldplay came to pay their respects. Oh, okay. And um, so, since they were just sort of talked about right at the end, I just want to take this time to explicitly say to the boys of Coldplay, Chris guy will johnny i know you guys are listening we would love to have you on season two talk about the bombshell report of you guys choosing to not tour until it's environmentally sustainable Uh, i think there's a lot of angles to that i think it's very interesting i think there's so much to talk about um and again again, i know that they're dedicated listeners to the road So i just wanted to be explicit about
1: it that uh we'd love to have you guys on come on the pod really any two I mean, yeah. It was a very fascinating, very, very fascinating announcement. And uh, we would absolutely love to pick their brains on what went into that decision. Um, CT, what time is it? Uh, Oh, mailbag time. (laughs) I thought you were talking. It's 3.42. (laughs) No. But that's not what you were asking. No, it is time for the road taken mailbag CT, what is the email address that people who have any questions for us about touring or anything else can send an email? See, to See this, I'm
0: feeling more and more confident about. Okay, it's the road taken at theringer.com.
1: That is true. Any questions you have, please send an email to the taken at theringer.com. CT, do you have access to the road taken at theringer.com? Straight up,
0: I just didn't even try this week. So,
1: I mean, we've been busy. Straight up, didn't a didn't lot even, going didn't on. Try. I mean, you're you're grinding away at uh the guide for this week's episode. Going to shout that out again. This week, there'll be a lovely breakdown of the conversation with links, just killer annotations. <laughs> um, I know as after we finish recording this, you're going to go back yeah. to, to grinding on that, but I understand why you didn't take the time to try and hack into but the. But I'm, I'm guessing you did with your oh, permanent yeah. access. And I'm I did. guessing you picked a great, relevant question. I got. I actually did it because this is going to be did you the pick last. Two? Did you pick two? I actually went a little deeper than that, but this is the last mailbag of this inaugural season of The Road Take. And so well, I kind of, of curated Oh, uh, the last recording session. Okay, exactly. So the first email I wanted to take was from someone named Nola. This is the first pick. Um, like New Orleans? Yeah, exactly. N-O-L-A. Nola. And the email title is Forward Baby Thermometer. Hi, so the email says, hi, Nola from Pacom Medical. May I know if you are still looking for infrared thermometer? Best regards, Nola. And the reason why I picked this is because this is clearly the first piece of spam that we have received at the road taken at the ringer.com. I hope you clicked all the links. I I don't know. It just felt like.
0: I'm sure there's some links that are pretty enticing.
1: You know, I got uh, a number, an email address, a website. There's not, it didn't ask for like banking information. We're not there yet. We'll
0: reach out to you uh, personally. But
1: this, I don't know, this felt like a big moment for us (laughs) because this is a project that's growing. We've been doing it for a while. So to get the first bit of spam email is pretty exciting. Again, at the buzzer. And I guess, CT, my question for you is, are you looking for an infrared thermometer?
0: Not at the moment, but you never know where life will take you.
1: Okay. Okay. Thank you, Nola, for your question. Thanks, Nola. Um, Keep (laughs) listening. Keep keep listening. All right. Uh, Next email is from Brandon. Hey, fellas. Love the pod. I was wondering if there are any bands you have toured with that you'd specifically like to shout out that were a great hang, whether it be you as the opener or you as the headliner, good or bad, preferably good. Secondly, for CT, if my jazz beat your nets on January 14th, can I get a tour of the CNC Music Factory? Cheers, Brandon. Um, I guess I like this because you know we're on a great tour right now uh, our openers list they've been a great hang great, They're a great band. band LISS LISS great band. Um, personally my f- I guess the band that we probably had the deepest hangs with was uh, Beach House we did a six and a half week tour with them in 2010 and they were just a Absolutely great hang. But really, we've been lucky in that you form this kind of short term family when you're on a tour, and we've always had good openers. When we've been an opener, we've always been treated nicely. I don't know. Is there any specific people we've toured with you want to shout out? Um, well, because this is how my brain works, that my first thought was list because they're here. <laughs> they're here. Great. And out. they are.
0: And they are. Yeah. They, I watched their whole set from out in the crowd uh, yesterday in, in Madrid. And yeah, they're, I don't know. They're just a really good band. They're a very nice young Danish gentleman
1: alright next question oh wait the, oh, yeah.
0: the jazz nets oh the night. jazz
1: so yeah people have started asking about getting tours of the cnc scenes. music oh, really? factory or seeing what the interior of cnc music factory is uh, we're not ready to share that yet we're
0: still doing some work say what why, instead of that why don't we do um, I don't know what the reciprocation can be but if the jazz beat the nets and I just looked it up it's at barclays center so you know I'm liking our chances at home here oh yeah um, even though it was a close game we lost already to you guys in utah early in the season how about I'll send you a small piece of Torm- of my personal vampire weekend torment oh, memorabilia great. to Brandon?
1: That is a great, great bet. Um, are you looking forward to getting home and spending some time in CNC Music Factory? I know that's something I'm looking forward to very much. So, I mean, you know, we got Turkey Day coming up, so it's mm-hmm. not going to happen this weekend. No. Hosting
0: host the in laws, which I'm excited about. Shout I'm out, excited about. But yes, when I think about December and then uh, specifically early next year. Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, it's a balance where touring is so much fun and obviously fascinating, which is why we're doing this whole thing. But music isn't just that. I mean, it can mm-hmm. be. Uh, but I, I think the full 360 view of it is is both the stuff at home and, and the stuff on the road.
1: Next question from Steven. Meet me in the bathroom. The book, not the imperative. Hey, guys. Thanks for taking the time to put your podcast out in the world. I especially enjoyed your conversation with Albert Hammond Jr., Vampire Weekend and The Strokes were both heavily featured in Lizzie Goodman's oral history on the NYC-ought rock scene Meet Me in the Bathroom. I'm wondering, what is it like to read about yourself and other people, bands you came up with? Did you read her book or try to avoid it? And how does it feel to read things about yourself if you don't feel like they're totally accurate? Is there VW fake news? Thanks again, Stephen.
0: Well, I have to admit that the only page of that book that I read was the first page. Well,
1: CT... <laughs> And this was the music book of the year, either 2017 or 2018. I guess it came out in 2017, Probably. right? I don't know. But I, I was, I read the book, and I, I was absolutely flabbergasted when I opened it up. And the first I was, this page was second. a quote it was a quote from my good friend Christopher C.T. Thompson. It and it's
0: something to the effect of... Um, one city, 10 years. Or like one decade or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Which I have no recollection of saying.
1: Well, you didn't... Okay, this was interesting to me. I'm sure I me. did. I'm no, 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 sure this I was did. interesting to me because... Lizzie Goodman is good friends with Imran who signed us to XL and like, she interviewed all of us in 2013. Like I remember she came to my apartment in Greenpoint. We had a great talk about so much. And then the book came out four years later and you had zero recollection that she had interviewed you. And you said you were like, I, they must've just taken all these quotes from, from interviews I had done in the past. Which I thought was kind of interesting, especially because you made such a big splash on the first page that you had no recollection of being interviewed for the book. So I don't know. Did you did it feel weird reading that one page for you?
0: Well, apparently, I think she did interview me, and the reason that she I,
1: absolutely interviewed you, she I interviewed I remember, everybody in the book
0: that I didn't remember. It was because it was like in the any number of press things for Modern Vampires. Yeah, it was. Right. So it was I, it. I like didn't I hadn't categorized it as something <laughs> separate. So I was like, what is this? Uh, I'm sure I said that. I have no desire to hear the audio of it. But uh, I'm sure I said it when I would assume that I said it in a somewhat like jokey manner. But as you learn, and if you've watched the sitcom 3 Rock, they, you know, they take the jokey one. So I'm I'm sure that I said that. But I sort of, (laughs) I was in a bookstore, like looking through, I saw the first page, I saw that I said that and I, I immediately walked away.
1: But how did you find the book? Oh, I loved it. It was a great read. I don't know. I think you find if you do a bunch of interviews and different stuff, that's not or people write about you, you just realize that that's. A whole separate thing. That's not who you are. Obviously, it doesn't represent the totality of being a living person. Um, but yeah, I love that book. Definitely recommend people read it. Although I imagine a large percentage of our listeners have already read it. One thing that was interesting actually was um, Stephen Hyden wrote a book called Your Favorite Band is Killing Me that I read on vacation three ish years ago. And there was one part where he wrote that none of the members, he was talking about how members of bands don't like die early from drug overdoses. And one of the bands he mentions is us. So it was like, none of the members of vampire weekend are dead, which I thought, which felt a little bit surreal to be alive and reading about how I am still alive. That was one of the weirder things I've read, but it don't, there's don't, a little don't bit don't of a dis- disassociated yeah, yeah, exactly. element to it where
0: you do your best when you're talking to someone, whether you remembered or not, and then you kind of move on. And, and uh, you know, I have no problem with the book. I'm not saying yeah. anything like that. And it seems like people really like
1: it. And this, I just want to take this, uh, so thank you for your question, Stephen. That was a really good one. Uh, I just wanted to take a little bit, we got to, this is right at the buzzer. This email came in like, uh, I don't know, maybe like an hour ago. Whoa. I'm just going to quote one part very briefly, but it's from Matt, someone who Hi, Matt. Uh, had the wedding first dance to Step and came to our show in Paris.
0: Just like two weeks ago?
1: Yeah, yeah, just two weeks ago, and um, he wrote us a lovely, lovely message, but I know this section is dragging on a little bit, so I just want to focus on one of the sub-questions, which is, CT, how did you feel coming out from behind the tubs for Married in a Gold Rush? Which this is from our show a couple weeks ago. I remember in a previous episode, you mentioned being a little uncomfortable doing that. You looked really ripped and sexy, though. (laughs) Also, I love the sleeveless Mets team, big Mets fan. So, in the first episode, we talked a little bit about your workout regimens, and I, it's, I don't know, we'll probably do a separate episode. If we get a second season of this podcast, we'll do a whole episode sure. on your workout regimen. But yeah, how does it feel coming out from behind the tubs?
0: Oh, I think what's being referred to is that there was a song called Taxi Cab that we have started playing again, but we used to play constantly or more often um, during the Contra era. And that was the sort of the first motion ever behind the drum set. And that I would get very tweaky about you're standing, not sitting, you're feeling exposed and no drums in front of you, that sort of thing. Um, the first couple times of Married in the Gold Rush and there's another song called Hold You Now where I do some guitar stuff, does feel different. But like most things with touring, you do it a couple times, you kind of get used to it. You can turn off the, ideally you can turn off the nerves um, once you do it a few times, get a few under your belt. I'd like to shout out to my parents who are at the Paris show who I, I gave them the <laughs> the option of what what shirt they wanted me to wear. I didn't want to wear <laughs> I didn't want to embarrass them in front of the Parisian crowd. Oh, yeah, nice. So they chose the sleeveless Metz tea okay. th- for that particular occasion. They
1: knew you were going to look sexy in that show. Um, that was why I'm they picked sure. it.
0: Yeah. Uh, but I appreciate the kind words. But yeah, I, I think the guitar stuff is fun. I, it's honestly such a different visceral experience. There's something about being behind people. I've said this before, but even though you're obviously very much there and making loud noise, I sort of feel, not invisible, but I feel like there's like a protective sheen in front of me or something that is not there. When you're playing guitar, which has has good elements and bad elements to it. But um I do appreciate the kind, of, <laughs> kind <of laughs> words. Thank you.
1: Yeah, it's a little inspiration next time you're going to the gym for you. Um, and that's it for uh the mailbag. Thank you guys so much. Anyone who sent any questions all season, they are Thank so, you so yeah. good. We really love it. It's super fun. The road taken at the ringer.com. Uh, I think now it's time for our newest segment. Now, CT, I know. You've already slapped the tubs in eight different countries over the course of 13 shows, and you have one more show tonight. But could you do a little bit of a tub slapping on the table to introduce our next segment? Sure. Here we go. Will they plug their socials? You know, I don't think we should. I think we should well t- let's talk about it. But okay, <laughs> CT, is there anything you want to plug this week, um, including or not including your socials? Uh, no, I'm good. Oh, check out Lizzie Goodman's uh, seminal history. Oh wait, you the- wanted a, you wanted to plug out La Rigmarole. Oh, oh yeah, last year, yeah.
0: We had a meal in Paris that your friend is the mm-hmm. chef at this great restaurant in Paris that they took care of us. Rob and-, and
1: Jess they hosted us the night after our show in Paris. We had a nice family meal, the seven of us, at La Rigmarole. Wonderful, wonderful restaurant. So that's... that was, You said after we did this last week, you said you wish you had plugged it. I meant it. to, yeah. So I thought we'd do that. Um, gosh. Do I want to plug my socials? You know what? No. I, I want to plug next week's episode. And That's what I was thinking. This yeah. is the season finale of the first season of The Road Taken. And we did a little bit differently. We actually kind of split it up. And the two of us, we each interviewed a different person. So... A little bit different, a little bit of an experiment, but I'd say, I don't know, it'll be tough to get to the end of it with a dry eye, so you may want to listen with uh, Kleenex, but uh, I'm really looking forward to that season finale getting out there. Um, like I, don't I said, know, it's, it's g- going
0: to be shocking. It's going to be, be shocking, shocking. it's going to be emotional. I feel like it's going to be like a This Is Us kind of thing.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Major This Is Us vibes. That's what I wanted to plug. Okay, yeah, the, I want to plug the same thing. We're on the same page. So, next week's episode, you'll have to listen to figure out who the guests are. Now, CT, I hear you have a quote about well, I the road. Why do you want to hit him with a like and subscribe? Oh, yeah, yeah, please. Because that seems to be when you ask for something,
0: people know that you, you appreciate their, their help and their and We their want input. to keep
1: this going. We want to do another season. We want to do many seasons. We have so many ideas. Someone sent an email about wishing we interviewed a tour manager. That's an idea that, that we definitely have for the next season. So appreciate that. But yeah, like, subscribe, review. It makes a difference. Um, but yes, I do. Is this my first? No, no, I, ha- no, you I had. had off your, the top you had your. You did your your, your, your
0: book quote at Red Rocks. And funnily enough, okay, this this connects up very well. Is uh, back before Facebook was a geopolitical shitstorm. I had this quote as sort of was my oh, like. Nice. I think when we started touring, I used this. So it doesn't specifically say road, okay. But I think it the the spirit uh, is there. It's a song called Wheels by our guest today, Chris Hillman and the Flying Burrito Brothers. We've all got wheels to take ourselves away. We've got the telephones to say what we can't say we've all gone higher and higher every day come on wheels take this boy away see you guys next
1: week